Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Fodak. I'm here with Douglas McMaster, coming in from, I believe, London. Is that right? That is, uh, that's correct. East London. And I'm going to share a bit of your background and then say how you came here to be on the podcast. So Douglas McMaster is a chef, restaurateur, Master Chef UK finalist, and pioneer of the zero food waste movement. He's worked in over 20 restaurants in Europe and Australia, including St. John, London's acclaimed nose to tail shrine, Heston Blumenthal's renowned The Fat Duck, the wild food foraging locavore temple Noma in Copenhagen. In 2015, you opened Silo, the first zero restaurant in Brighton, where they mill their own flour, brew their own beer, source wonky and off-grid plant food, and compost their own waste. He thinks about pure natural foods every day. And now it's Silo has moved from Brighton to London. And so how did I come to find you? There was a video called A Failure of the Imagination. So everyone, I won't mind if you pause this and go and watch that. To it, I don't, Is that a, I wouldn't call it a documentary. Is it a, like a biopic or? We call it a short film. So a short film called A Failure of the Imagination. And it starts off, I didn't know anything about you at first. I just saw this. I'm a member of this, a place that shows little documentaries like that. And it was in the emails, like, check this one out. So I start watching it. I'm thinking, oh yeah, another one of those. Because I get on this podcast, I get so many PR people who contact me and they say, oh, this is new eco something or other. And it never, it almost always is not, you know, if you want to change systems, you have to change yourself. And it seems like people who are not, they're just like making something a little bit more efficient. And if you make a polluting system more efficient, you pollute more efficiently, even if very locally, you might lower the pollution. And really, yeah. And yeah, I've gone on for a bunch. I'll get back to the other stuff about, I contacted you because I have my famous no packaging vegan stews, which I love. And it was work to figure it out because I was, I probably never had an unpackaged meal in my life or something packaged mm-hmm. was in probably every meal. And it was work and it's a struggle to, I had a lot of very bad tasting food for a while, not bland, bland. But then I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. And it's like delicious now. And I meet the farmers and I meet the vendors at the farmer's market. And it's absolutely wonderful. And it seemed like you went through that process, except whereas I do it like simple, I'm just, mine tastes really good, but I'm not going for variety. I'm not going for pleasing others. It's my own palate. People seem to like it, but you're a chef and you're making mm-hmm. a restaurant. You're making a business of it. You're in the book you have, I can't, I didn't even try to count how many different dishes you have and anyway, i'm going on too much welcome doug <laughs> thank you so much i'm yeah i'm very very grateful to be here and speaking to yourself and a, a sort of an audience that i think is really going to connect with some of the things i say i'm very lucky to have been mentored by some truly genius brilliant innovative people in my career and so i'm just yeah putting together the dots putting together the information to form something that i think is quite special we describe it as a zero waste restaurant which basically means that we don't have a bin this is the world's first zero waste restaurant and you mentioned a system, it's done, it's achieved by a system change that I would describe as a pre-industrial food system. And if you'll let me indulge in that a little bit, once upon a time, I was working with an artist in Australia called Joost Backer, spelt J-O-O-S-T. And if anyone's not aware of Joost Backer, please do check him out because he's one of the geniuses that I uh, was referring to. He's an extraordinary thinker. And Yoast had a, a restaurant that was made out of waste materials, 
wasn't necessarily a zero waste system. So in other words, they did have a bin, but it was made of waste. And then the conversation naturally led to the bin. And Yost said to me, to, to a young 22-year-old chef, could you not have a bin? And it was this profound moment. I was a young chef that had worked in these fine dining restaurants. And the thought of not having a bin was as abstract as anything that I could have been proposed um, as an idea. And I was just in awe of this amazing artist. My dad was an artist and I've had this artistic nurturing through life where I aspire and I have a lot of time and respect for artists and art. And yeah, and he said to me, could you not have a bin? And as a chef, I didn't know where to start, I didn't know how to even think about that. But if he told me to jump, I would have jumped. <laughs> so I, with him, with his sort of guidance of, he also, there's more to him than that. He was a, a, a regenerative farmer. He was an avid food nutritionalist and a lot of other unusual things. But anyway, he and I started Silo in, in Melbourne as a pop-up, which is the world's first cafe that didn't have a bin. And then the UK was beckoning me back. I had some uh, family troubles. Some, my dad was, I had to come back for him. And yeah, I lost the momentum in Australia and started Silo as a restaurant, which is, yeah, the world's first zero waste restaurant. And it sounds like you, there's a whole bunch of personal change on your part that it's, okay, to say no bin, which in the US, I think we'd say wastebasket or, or trash can. And that sounds like the beginning. The, the pro- I know that when I challenged myself to go without packaged food, it was for a week and I didn't think I would make it. I made it two and a half weeks. And then it was like every other week, every month, I would empty my garbage. Now it's been since 2019. And I'm still learning. Like I thought I was like, oh, I just want to make it through 2020 and 2021 without emptying my trash. And now it's funny. I'm now in 2022. And I'm thinking, oh, I was going to throw it. I was planning on emptying it in January, but it's, I put something in so rarely. It's like, oh, maybe another month or two. And I don't know when I'll empty it. It's anyway, this learning process of, for, I'm just doing it in my home for a restaurant. sounds like a whole other level of challenge, whole other level of Mm -hmm. discovery and curiosity and joy. Sure. So something that I I wish I'd actually started with in saying, because I think it sets a nice sort of precedent for all of the solutions, all of the innovations, all of the the world of silo, the universe of silo is predicated on this idea. And I think it is best described in a quote. And I'm not too quote heavy. I I don't reference everybody in, in this podcast, but... There is one particular quote that I think is so important that I will say, and it's uh, from Desmond Tutu. He said that there comes a point where we have to stop pulling people out of the river. Instead, we must go up the stream and find out why they're jumping in. And that that might take a second to sink in. It took a couple of years for it to sink into me. I, I remember hearing it, reading it, hearing it, and thinking that having this twinge of there's something here, almost like a metal detector, there's something meaningful in this quote. It did take me a few years to really absorb that and, and understand why that was re- relevant to me. And in a nutshell, what I realized in this journey to not having a bin was that it was 
assistant change and that is a common you know term that's battered around quite a lot and i'd mentioned this pre-industrial food system and through a series of revelations one day i was in melbourne this was sat there on my own in this little cafe at night time on a monday i was i think this was the first few days i was in there trying to make shortbread and <clears throat> to get like flour we would have this whole wheat and to get butter we would have cream from a cow these things coming directly from nature uh, very holistic and very natural and pure and high high processing i was spending hours just to churn the butter and you know what do i do with the buttermilk and anyway it's a very unique evening a uh, unique process as a chef who's never milled flour or never churned butter and i remember taking my time and I was just in a deeply reflective, contemplative mood. And I think I had a bit of wine as well. And I was trying to think, what is the common denominator with milling flour and churning butter and trying to not have a bin? What is unique about this? Then I realized why, what systems give us in these sort of foil packets and what system gives us pre-milled flour? That's not what nature's system is that's not nature you don't find that in nature and so i was thinking about that and i was thinking like over the last hundreds of years what's happened we have industrialism and how is industrialism applied to food systems we know obviously does amazing things industrialism in the in healthcare it saves millions of lives you know through efficiency in modern medicine and in space travel we go to the moon and all this sort of thing and transport and you know production of metals and that's very good it's very productive very very productive but how is it applied to food and we know factories we know monocultures we know plastic and processing and that is indicative of an industrial food system and what i guess what my revelation that evening was that we were not doing those things we were essentially all the things that we associate with industrialized food systems were not there we were literally going back to nature. We were going directly. We were circumventing middlemen, wholesalers, plastic processing, all of these things that the industrial food system we weren't doing. And what was unique about me making shortbread out of freshly churned butter and freshly milled flour was that's perhaps how it was made pre-industrially. If you wanted milled flour, it wasn't available at a shop. You'd have to mill it or you'd have to churn it. And and yeah, I realized a number of things in that. One is, you know, you know we, I can title silo a zero industrial food system, but deeper than that, that's what waste is. Like, and, and that might not seem that relevant, but it's, it means everything. Like waste is a human thing. Like we as humans created waste. And it, it, it was done so through this industrialism. In, in a jungle, in, in, in nature, there is no bin. No other species creates waste. It's just us humans. And that was, I don't know, this kind of beaming light from my head from that day. And I've, I've always, it's just been so clear to me that what I have to do with silo, and I think broader than that, what has to happen in the future of sustainable human society is that we need to, and we need to reconnect. We need to embrace nature. And that the health of nature is the health of the planet, the health of ourselves on the planet. Because this industrialism is a short-term win. We're mining the earth for its resources, and those resources are finite. 
and they're going to run out and we're going to have rising temperatures and blah, 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 blah. We need to respect nature. We need to, I've got a lot of ideas, but I'll perhaps um, not dive into just yet. But essentially, that was a, a really important revelation. And this Desmond Tutu quote, it's understanding why a problem exists waste exists because of humans so to understand why instead of pulling people out of the river which is this surface level kind of response to problems around us which is only exasperate the problem before the podcast we were chatting and you gave an example of that what we need to do is fundamentally change the system that is creating the problem in, in, in my perspective and it's it's not as black and white as saying that industrialism is a problem but it's a significant aspect of the problem. The greed within these capitalistic measures to control this industrialism, you could say is the problem. You could say that greed is the problem, but essentially it's that system that I can contribute to changing. I can prove, and I have been proving now for nearly a decade, that as I can own a restaurant that doesn't have a bin, everything comes from regenerative, very biodiverse um, systems in nature that are not damaging nature. I'm not mining the earth and, and destroying it in the process for our greed. It's providing a service which I think is quite exceptional. We get a lot of great reviews for our food. And if we can make this product itself spectacular if it's delicious and an amazing experience and wins michelin stars and and it be good to, to nature that will turn the tide that will be hopefully a sign of things to come and it's not easy but yeah i've dedicated my life to it from that point and always looking to connect to people like yourself josh to have an opportunity to talk about this because that's why i'm doing it is to change things yeah would you say that it seems like this small little, for, for most people, they say, well, it was a trash bin. I, you know, I emptied it whenever, and it's no big deal. It's not that big of a deal. And you think that small shift of what if there wasn't one, then it hits you like a ton of bricks when it does hit you. That mm. I think it is very easy. I certainly felt the following that it's impossible to reduce my waste to zero. Simply living requires that I produce. Waste. I exhale carbon dioxide. Isn't that a greenhouse gas? Mm. It's very tempting to think that way. The best I can do is minimize it. Yeah. But that's not the case. For hundreds of thousands of years, humans have been human, and we didn't produce pollution. We didn't produce – if there's something that I would call waste, it was someone might eat half of a fruit and leave the rest on the ground, but that wasn't, pollute, that wasn't pollution. And yeah. we, we don't have to live this way. And – then it's very easy to say, I'm sure a lot of people are listening to you and thinking, oh, I don't have the time for that. Because you said that you're proving that this can be done. And I feel like people are constantly like, oh, okay, you can do it, but I can't. But it's, I have more time as a result of living this way. I have more freedom. Well, we have a silo book and one of the first double-page spread. It's a double-page spread and it just said in huge text, change is hard. Yeah, I'm not here to say that it's easy. I'm not here to say that I do have a system. I do have a, an idea that works, an imperfect system. Like I'm very conscious that I'm saying a lot of things that like, oh, it's a delicious food and it's a system that truly works and supports nature. It's highly imperfect. 
but it's 10 years old. It's a profitable business that doesn't have a bin. And it's not easy. I have sacrificed so much of my life. And I use the word sacrifice carefully. Mm-hmm. Sacrificed. I didn't pay myself for five years at the beginning. It's not strictly true, but I was not very wealthy and couch surfing a lot of the time and scraping by. And I was just determined not to fail, but it pushed me and my mental health to the edges, to the edge, basically. And it's been extremely hard. And as people might also listen to that and say, oh, I'm definitely not doing that then. Being the first, there's an amazing book um, called How to Change the World. And Jean-Christophe Novelli, I think, was the author. And he had his whole chapter about going first. (laughs) And he's uh, talking about the psychology of the one who goes first and the second person and then the third person. And the psychology is so fascinating. (laughs) Basically, the first is a (laughs) madman or a madwoman. Yeah, uh, pardon me. And yeah, it is extraordinarily hard to do what I do, but I have been doing it for 10 years and the world has radically changed in that time and it's become easier and easier and easier every single year. And as soon as, and this is the system change blowing up, is if suppliers and wholesalers come online to the same values, if we spread the important uh, message behind these values you know what we're talking about and then people hear that and people change their actions in small ways and then before we know it different businesses within the system come online to the same values and then boom it's a a sea change you can integrate those values you can the way we work with i don't know just a simple example like getting uh, milk and cream in a stainless steel pail it's a brilliant idea. Again, very symbolic of a pre-industrial system is before plastic um, single use. And the more people and places that come online to that simple idea, boom, the amount of plastic that is saved within the dairy industry is radical. And it's just a matter of time before these things come true, because we realize we've seen Blue Planet. We understand now the implications of plastic pollution and we yeah, of course, I feel bad about that. You mentioned when somebody puts something in a bin because the bin's there and they don't worry about it. That's if they're to some level conscious that's pollution and they continue to put it in the bin. That's apathy as a circumstance of industrialism. Because what if you think about the landfills, you think about consumerism, and how easy it is to to waste things. And there is no zero waste police. There's no penalty, punishment for wasting things. But yet we know, or we might not know, but we might know that that is a bad thing. <laughs> that is pollutant. And we've wasted food. We sort of, it's growing in our kind of collective conscious that this, these are bad things. But yeah, industrialism does breed apathy another there's a sort of whole psychological side to industrialism that i think about i contemplate quite a lot you you know when we're disconnected we're essentially it's disconnecting us from nature and so we consider this these things from nature like commodities and we just don't understand the harmony the balance that needs to be met with nature and uh, unfortunately we're going to feel the consequences 
of that that apathy in the years to come with climate change and all of the other issues that we face with health, the health of the human race. And there's so many different things and resources and whatnot. But I'm going to you know, pause there and get your thoughts on some of those things. So much to follow up on. I, I think this may have to be the first of multiple conversations. That <laughs> I'm really glad you, you, one of the main things I heard there was values and how this is not just a change in values. And it's not sacrifice in the sense of living worse by giving up. When you switch to the new values, it's living, there's, it's, it's awesome. And it's also being first it made me think of, I use this example sometimes of, at some point, there was some woman who wore pants in the West for the first time. And I imagine she was ridiculed and scorned. Maybe she was put yeah. in jail, I don't know. But she, and maybe it was more than one at a time, I'm not sure. I, and I've looked this up. I don't think we know who the first one was, or the first few were. There were some names there, but they are among the most influential people in all of history. I've never, I guess there are Amish communities where, or, you know, some communities where women don't wear pants, but basically billions of women today wear pants. And there's just a couple that got started and it was probably rough for them, maybe for the next ones. And now no one thinks twice about it. And it's brilliant. Yeah. They're, they're forgotten to history in a sense, but really, and what did they do? They lived by their values. Now they had to suffer the consequences of people who yeah. didn't get it. People with the old values. But really, the, the, uh, after, I don't know how long it took, after, I would guess, less than a generation, it was probably normal. And yeah, like, oh, I'm over there, I got, I'm not at your level, but I got, I'm fermenting all this chutney and sauerkraut and vinegar. And the, oh yeah, my latest thing is unplugging the fridge. So I, I, my fridge has been unplugged three or four months now. And it's my third cycle mm. through it. And because it's cool out. And so I can just put stuff on the windowsill and that keeps it cool. But it's, it looks like sacrificing the outside. I'm sure people are thinking like, what's Josh? I don't know if they've, how many times you've been called extreme, but I get called extreme a lot. And mm. I'm like extremely connected to nature is not extreme fun. It's not, it's hard I to put agree. into words. Mm. It's extreme with the perception of understanding of it the person who's commenting has on the subject that you're commenting on. It's a matter of in one decade, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example, there could be a, a bias or a, a, some sort of a strong opinion on a certain aspect of, say, I don't know, what, what it is to be a man. And then uh, 10 years later, that is badly outdated and yeah aged very badly because at a particular decade the perception of understanding of that subject was you could say limited but you know different it's evolving all the time our perception of understanding of a thing and why those people are saying that's uh, extreme looking at you turning your fridge off that might seem like that now when the conversation oh, that we're having isn't necessarily mainstream. In 10 years, it will be, and that won't be extreme. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, I don't, something I sometimes think about, I'm going to ask you, if, if someone said to you, well, what does it feel like the prospect of going back to having a bin in your restaurant? What, how does that make you feel? <laughs> like a failure. <laughs> isn't it like distasteful? There's like, 
wrong. There's something, I don't know how to yeah. put it. Well, when you learn something is wrong, is ethically immoral or unjust, you can't go back on that unless no. you know, you're you some sort of like sociopath. Like you can't go backwards. You're like, I now know it's wrong. And it, I'm trying to, <laughs> so many examples I want to use, but I'm not sure any of them are very elegant. But essentially, once you understand that it's wrong, you can't go back. It, it, yeah, it would be criminal to go back on, on those things. And there's nothing wrong for if people haven't yet come to that revelation, if they don't realize it's wrong and they're still doing it, that doesn't make them unjust or immoral or, or bad people. It just means they're not aware yet. And it is a, a, a patient game waiting for essentially the world to come online to various indifferences and inequalities. And it, it, it is, you can't force that information at people. People learn organically especially when it comes to sensitive you know matters and waste might not seem sensitive but it is it feeds into classism wealth into the economy and etc it is tenuous it is it is sensitive it is so i often have been called so certainly in the earlier days the way i would describe what i do wasn't necessarily as I wasn't being as aware or metacognitive as I could have been thinking outside of my own bubble, how people are perceiving what I'm saying. And I've learned the hard way, you know, I've been shot down quite a lot for being kind of preachy, holier than thou, hipster wanker, all these things I've been, you know, called and made to, to sort of repent for my lack of awareness in what I'm saying. And I have a very different story now. And I'm very aware and sensitive to the way in which people and, and society adopts change. And it is slow. And it's much, much slower than the damage we're doing to nature. So that is a worry. Mm-hmm. That by the time we've all come online to the reality of our relationship with nature on earth, it'll be too late. It'll be way too late if you look at the rate of change. But that doesn't mean that's how it all unfolds. The future of sustainability on earth doesn't unfold like waiting for the last person to understand that, you know, it's nature's important. It's, well, there's this big strategy in that next sentence, which you're part of. I'm sure we could get into a little bit more. Yeah, so it's really refreshing for me to talk to someone who's talked about the pace of change and thinking about if I, I mean, I do throw stuff away. And when I do, I, I think of, I don't know if you saw the movie, The Story of Plastic, but it, like seeing, oh, yeah, yeah. If you th- before I saw it, I thought, oh yeah, I know what the situation is. And I see it, I'm like, oh my God, it's advanced far beyond what I thought. And then that was years ago. So I know that it's advanced since. And the old me would have thought that it was a burden to have to deal with, to think about how I'm affecting everyone with everything that I do. And then I realized that this is what it this is. One of the most human things about us is to care about how we affect others. And that separation that you talked about earlier of industrialism and, and our cultures playing out. I see it playing out in, in 
addiction and depression. And I don't want to oversimplify things. There's a lot of things going on, but we're separating from each other and this connection to everyone. Yeah. It means that I can't fly, but that's not a burden that before 1903, nobody flew and Mozart still produced some pretty, you know, nice sounding music. And it's actually a great joy. And yeah, my, my stepfather, he's, when I talk about this, I'm like, it's great to connect with people. You sound like a preacher, Josh, just leave that aside. Just, I don't want to hear that. I don't like when preachers come over and I don't want to hear from you. You do your thing, but I'm just living my life and I'm not hurting anyone. There's, there's something key to understand and, and that's human nature. And, and we are all afraid of what we don't understand. And calling you a preacher is a, you're presenting an amount of information which is overwhelming to that person. And I feel like a, that response is, I'm not saying they're afraid, like you'd be afraid of a ghost. It's, uh, there's a degree, like with everything, of fear because there is a, a, a piece of information that is yeah, overwhelming to that individual. It's like when if somebody listens, spends their life listening to classical music and then you blare the stereo with death metal, that's quite intimidating to, to that person that's only listened to classical music. So, I, I, yeah, and I've been, I've had a pretty hard time with coping. You said, I wonder if people have called you extreme. Maybe not to my memory extreme, but they call me a lot of things. <laughs> and that is hard to deal with. And yeah. I don't envy so many people in the spotlight far more extreme circumstances than us. I don't envy that at all because I find it quite hard to manage. You know, I really try so hard and I'm definitely not going to use the word selflessly because there's the whole story that I think we should, I think it's quite an interesting thing there personal motivations, etc. But yeah, I am trying to do a good thing. I really am trying to do a good thing. And I'm not trying to be rich. I'm not trying to be famous. I believe in this thing and I won't give up. <laughs> and I don't understand or haven't understood. I find it very hard to understand why people are being horrible. Why are, why are people saying horrible things <laughs> about what I'm trying to do? And that has, you know, led me to a lot of psychology, a lot of philosophy. I don't know if you've ever you've ever heard of the allegory of the cave. The uh, allegory of from Plato. Plato, yes, yeah. yeah. And for anyone listening that, that might be interested in that, and it's this story, this allegory of these this community of people that live in a cave, and their whole life they're all born into this cave, and that's the only world they know. And there is uh, a glimmer of light from the outside world and occasionally different animals walk past the light and in the cave they have all these shadows of a rabbit and a deer. Anyway, and one day one of the cave dwellers manages to call out and find a way out of the cave and leaves the cave and, and sees for the first time or feels wind, never felt wind on, on uh, their skin, never seen the, the sun and then sees the, the rabbit and sees the deer and is like, oh my God, I cannot wait to tell everyone in the cave of this world. They're going to be thrilled and we can all rejoice in the sunlight and live happily ever after. And anyway, races back 
to the cave, so excited and ecstatic of this world outside, and, and then goes back into the cave and tells everyone this story of this outside world and the real rabbit, the real deer of the sun. And the information is, for somebody that isn't witnessing that, is so overwhelming. And the cave dwellers are so overwhelmed by this information, which is so abstract from what they what their world is, that they kill that uh, the cave dweller that had escaped the cave and seen this outside world. They ki- they kill that person, and that's the allegory of the cave. And in that, there's just a lot of understanding of certain aspects of psychology, the you know, the collective unconscious and behaviors. And I don't know, there's just a lot of lessons to be learned. And uh, I've certainly been sobering and nurturing in times where I've wanted to give up. And it's just taught me to teach slowly, to not rush change, have to be patient, have to give people the opportunity to, sorry, you have to, if they're they're interested in what you do you don't tell them you give them the opportunity to understand to learn we've been i've trained probably 500 chefs now 10 years maybe not 500 but there's i've been a we have at least two stagiaires work experience people come through the kitchen every single week so it's certainly in the hundreds and and yeah it's beautiful seeing that change but it is slow it is slow yeah it's funny how the Once one goes through this change, and I'm sure that a lot of people who realize they don't want to produce waste, and they go off and live somewhere in the country, and they don't produce waste, and I I tip the hat to them. I think that's great. I'm glad that they're doing that. But I think for a lot of us, there's, you have to go, like, it's impossible not to, not impossible, but you talk about the psychology and the change and and you're becoming a leader, whether you want it to or not, it's almost inevitable because yeah, you were saying you can't, if you try to push someone too fast, the way I put it in systems, uh, if you try to push the system faster than it can be, than it can go, it'll push back at you and it'll be mm. slower than if you didn't try to push it faster. Yeah. And on the other hand, on a personal level, I can't not try to help others. And I'm sure to some people that just sounded like a preacher thing to say, but I can't go slower than a certain pace either. I can't leave this, well, the waste goes somewhere in, in my world. I breathe the same air and water and drink the same water and eat the same off the same land as everybody. So we have to, it's anyone who goes through this will want to share it with others. I believe. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that would then lead me to, to inquire as to your sort of motivations in this whole movement, because I could comment on mine and everybody has different motivations to do what they do. And especially when it comes to, change of systems outside their self sometimes i do think i would sometimes i think and think that i would have been much more successful or i would have got much more reward in more typical ways financial and maybe financial i think silo or our restaurant i'd started if i didn't have this big mission in mind would have brought me yeah, certainly much more financial success. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that's not what I'm after. But yeah, it, it does occur to me that this is the path of most resistance. But it's curious. I'm just curious about somebody like yourself, about your motivations, because I don't think mine are what people expect. I 
think people might expect that I'm an environmentalist and that's why I'm doing it. But that's definitely not the reality. That's not certainly that's not how it started. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you asked. And we're going to run out of time before. So I hope we can continue this in a, in, in a future conversation as well. And people have heard about my sledding hill and I have a TEDx talk where I talk about, oh, I don't remember a time when I didn't know about sea level rise. I don't remember a time when I didn't know about plastics polluting by the side of the road and the oceans and things like that. That was always the case. I always knew about that, but I also always figured someone will solve it. It's not a big deal. It's fusion will save everything. And we just have to make things a bit more efficient. And someone else didn't really think much about it. Then what really instigated the change was something that I really had no intent for this to make a big effect in my life. It was simply about eight years ago, maybe nine years ago now, I challenged myself to go for a week without buying any packaged food. And why this? Because I was renovating my apartment in Manhattan and I was staying at my sister's place in Queens and seeing her cook for her, her three kids. She wasn't cooking like no zero waste, but she volunteered with farmer's markets. So she was getting all these fresh vegetables and not entirely from scratch, but a lot from scratch. And that reminded me of growing up and spending more time in nature as a kid. And that led me when I was in my apartment after seeing my sister cooking, looking at my garbage and saying, maybe I can't fix the whole world, but this garbage is going to end up on someone's sledding hill in their space. And I can take responsibility for my actions. And I thought, all right, I'm going to take one for the team here. I'm going to suffer for a week and go for without a week without packaged food. And that was enough time <clears throat> for me to boil beans on the stove for the very first time in my life, which I'm not proud that I was in my 40s, that that was the first time I did that. I made it two and a half weeks. The first thing I bought was a bag of onions. And after I bought it, I thought, why did I, I could have bought them loose. But what really hit me was when someone came over and I was cooking and I said, hey, can you run downstairs and buy tomatoes? And they brought back up the can of tomatoes. I'm like, this is worse than fresh. I, why did I pay for someone to smelt aluminum so I could get something worse or just not have the tomatoes in there. And then I said, let's see how long I can keep this going. And I, I got rid of my can opener soon after that. I haven't gotten a can since. And then I started one after another, things started fading away of these beliefs that I grew up with that I thought were reality and they weren't. And they, and all these things that I thought were saving me money were costing me more that I thought were saving me time or costing me more that I thought were putting me in touch with other cultures or separating me from other cultures and separating me from things around here. Like my favorite food in the world is Thai food in Thailand. That's the best cuisine uh, to my taste. But Thai restaurants in New York aren't that. They're that plus like tons more rice, tons more sweetener, a lot more coconut milk. And it's not. And so now March here, when I'm only getting stuff from the farmer's market, it's beets and radishes and turnips and potatoes. And I have to figure out how to make that delicious. And I, people have lived here for, I don't know, five, 10,000 years on Manhattan. And I don't think that they're miserable the whole time. So how can I, I know that around me are the ingredients, literally and figuratively, to live a joyful, awesome life. Mm. And the more that I do that, the more that I'm creating my local cuisine, which puts me more in touch with Thai cuisine, even though I'm not actually eating their food. I feel more in touch with them than if I flew there. And That's I, a really nice way of putting it. I really like that. 
it is really nice. It's a nice way of living too. <laughs> and I'm still yeah. on a journey. I'm still figuring stuff out. And it's my food tastes really good, and people seem to like it. But I haven't explored. You were talking about in your book, like how you would explore. I think you were talking about a, a pumpkin, and you had a perspective toward food that it reminds me of. Uh, once I was at a, a club listening to some music, and I was like, oh, I, f- I feel like I'm like a DJ with vegetables. I, I try to take vegetables and, and put them together in a way that really works well. And I don't know if you've been in New York recently or anyway, I, I made at this place called Superiority Burger, which is this awesome place with, it's the, one of the only restaurants I've been to a couple of more than twice in the past several years. And I taste it and like the flavors are coming in and out of my mouth. Like for 30 seconds, each bite is something like an adventure. And I thought if I'm a DJ, he's like a composer at the individual note level or maybe even creating the instrument level. And I'm listening to, uh, reading your thing, I'm thinking, oh, now I got to eat a silo because I know that he's working in a totally different way than I am. And I know that there's joy that he's brought out of those plants and funguses and beyond what I've been able to find. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I, we, uh, as a uh, designer, I am a chef and I've been a chef for most of my life. And I opened silo on my own and still own it on my own so to speak. And that is a challenge. And unfortunately, I'm not in the kitchen anymore because it's too much to be trying to run the kitchen and run you know, the whole business. So I'm now, but what I found myself doing is what I found myself doing for a long time, actually, is, is, is designing. And obviously, we use that word for people that organize walls to be painted and furniture to go to your house but now i design the experience and i guess have adopted this idea of being a designer in a way that has worked particularly well for me and i design things and i step outside of that perspective which can be thrown off by emotions and step out and look at every aspect of a restaurant and design it which might sound like happens calmly but it really doesn't it's really not that way it's cities like cities aren't designed that's how restaurants are created you just build from a sh- one person two people then whereas i try and design every aspect from the sort of from, from further back and the the meal itself a lot of and i think about the, the principle of this design and what happens a lot in kitchens and I've sort of again stepped away from this thing is you you, you think you, you design for what you think people want whereas I'm designing from what farms want or farmers want so if the farmers are growing an abundance of a particular thing that thing might be on the menu twice or three times that is the design so in another restaurant it would be you know maybe the chef and I want to, what do people want? What what I want? Whereas what I'm trying to design is what a farm wants. But then also thinking, right, the farm wants this, but then I need to make it taste amazing. I need the business to be sustainable. I need people to think this is amazing. Otherwise, they won't come back. So it's just having that greater understanding. But it does start with the farm. Essentially, where we're responding to nature's will. The menu, the 12 dishes that we do that is served as a kind of experience like a tasting menu it's all designed around the optimal experience wow people and to tell the story and to create harmony in the supply chain but it is 
a, a design. It's not this impulsive kind of reaction to whatever's happening in the kitchen that day. It's designed from, from here, from looking at and thinking about and contemplating value, these values that are critical to this business and designing from that perspective. So, yeah, that's sort of yeah, my insight to that. For we, we scheduled only an hour for this call. Will you come back and, and pick up oh. where we left off on the next? Yeah, time? let's do. Yeah, yeah, let's do that because um, I've got another call. <laughs> so then we will leave this as a cliffhanger for all the listeners, and we'll stop now. But I hope before you take that call, if we can get out our calendars. But just for now, Douglas McMaster, thank you very much, and I'll talk to you again soon. It's a pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very grateful for your time. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.